The Peanut Butter Falcon portrays redemption, brotherhood, and making the best of your natural limitations. Are you just watching? Episode 96, The Peanut Butter Falcon. Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And we decided to do something a little different this month. I mean, different for us. We tend to do a lot of really, I don't know, what, what do we normally do? Like Certainly superhero family centric movies, superhero, <laughs> more popular culture stuff. Yeah, more popular culture stuff. And this is a, a very slow, cultural, very niche movie. And I don't even know how many of our listeners will have seen this movie. Uh, hopefully they'll will listen to our review, whether they've seen it or not. I think it was only even in select theaters. I'm not entirely sure every theater got it. I'll tell you, when I went to go see it, it was only in one of five theaters within reasonable driving distance. Wow. Yeah. yeah and th my theater was only had two showings, so I didn't have a lot of options. The one that I did go see, it was maybe 10 people in there with me. And for a while, I thought I was going to see it by myself because I got there <laughs> early enough. I was the only one in the theater and then a few more people trickled in. But yeah, yeah. it's um, definitely not a popular movie. So it wouldn't surprise me if our listeners have not watched it. Yeah. But it's actually a really good movie. I wasn't sure what I was expecting when I'd go in. It's not a chick flick and it's not a family movie. But it's got some valuable messages in it, and it's worth watching. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. The biggest con was the language. And I even uh, plugged in, we do encourage you to go check the plugged in review. They even comment about how frequent the bad language is in, in this movie. But I really feel like they were trying to portray a specific culture, which this takes place in the waterways of like the Carolinas down to like Florida. Yeah, outer, outer Banks. The Outer Banks, yeah. And so I think it's a very niche culture there. And I think they were trying to portray the people as they actually are, very gritty and rough around the edges. And, you know, there's their own little culture there. Mm -hmm. I think they were trying to be authentic. And so that's where the language came from. Yeah. When I'm watching a series that has a lovemaking scene or something like that, if it makes sense in the story and it's contextual, it doesn't bother me as much. And I felt like the language was that way in this, where if they didn't talk that way, it might even have stood out a little bit more. Yeah, it, it would have been like they were cleaning it up for viewing audience without and then they wouldn't be authentic to the characters themselves yeah as a matter of fact there's there's even a scene where uh zach uh swears and tyler says no no you don't swear so he it was <laughs> even bringing to the viewer's attention that the swearing was a function of their personalities I thought it was a very heartwarming story and there were some very value, like I said before, some very valuable messages in it of brotherhood and redemption and things that we're going to discuss in depth later on. Other than that, there really isn't a lot I can say about this movie up front, just kind of like as an overview, other than it felt authentic. And, and, mm -hmm. we, and we'll discuss that a little bit more because there's a, an interview that we both watched with the, the actors of the film. And I think that... Um, some of the interaction between the characters uh, were so, felt so genuine because there was an actual real relationship growing between the actors. And so it, it came through in their performances. But before we get too far into our discussion, I do want to remind everybody that we are still doing a book offer on our Patreon campaign. Uh, it is the book that I have written to help you as our listeners to do your own reviews of watching movies. And it's a guided journal. Uh, it's free if you commit to a, a donation of $10 or more a month uh, to our podcast. And uh, I do want to recognize our long time and uh, very faithful supporters, Craig Hardy, Peter Chapman, and Stephen Brown II. Uh, they have been giving to us monthly and just really appreciate their support. And we'd love for more of you, even if you can't give the $10 to give, commit to giving like a dollar or, or you know, something small. Even one-time donations help. Yes, um, yes. You can do that through Patreon, right? 
Yeah, I think you can. Yeah. Well, you can just you can give it and then cut it off, you know. But we um we do have expenses to run the podcast. We keep them minimal and we're not making money off of this by any means, but (laughs) this is, this is just um, something that we do to benefit you. And if you appreciate what we're doing, we would appreciate your support to keep the podcast going. Um, Another aside is the music for this movie is by Jonathan Sadoff, who I have never heard of before. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that would make sense because the cultural atmosphere of the movie is maintained by this kind of uh, very specific music style that fits the type of people that you would see in the Outer Banks. And so it's very banjo strings, uh, kind of a countryish folk, I guess is the yeah. way you would would call it. It, um, it reminded me of uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The, the music yeah. selection and the, the background music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the most upbeat piece of music in the whole thing is is the wrestling scene, which you know we may or may not discuss because it, it's a an important part of the movie, but it really doesn't deal as much with some of the topics that we're going to discuss. But there is a a scene in there where Zach does some pro re, pro style wrestling, and uh, they have like a almost a kind of like. What is that? The, the WWE or whatever it is. A piece of music that sort of sounds a little yeah. bit like their theme. And they play that during that. But other than that, it's a very soft, very uh, unobtrusive soundtrack that just kind of uh, plays behind stuff so that, you know, you, you kind of have that atmosphere of music, but it's not yeah. like in your face. or It carries the mood of the movie very well. And that is one of the things about this movie that is, it is a very moody movie. It's got a lot of scenes where you're just watching things happen in a very subtle, gentle way. There's not a ton of dialogue in a lot of places. And uh, it's just a relaxing movie. But then yeah. there are like these scenes of in- very intensive action. Sort of like a roller coaster. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're riding along. You get the, the slow climb up to the top. And then <laughs> there's this big scene at the beginning. <laughs> And then uh, it's ups and downs and ups and downs, but the calm parts really, they did a great job of uh, highlighting the, the nature of where they were. Mm-hmm. Overall, and I've actually recommended this movie to a couple people since seeing it, and I always have to caution them, you know, beware, the language is bad, but the movie is beautiful. You know, like you said, this is uh, a really significant departure from the type of movie that we've uh, done in the past to me. And I don't know what the official definition of art house film is, uh, but Mm -hmm. this felt very artsy art house type to me. Uh, I remember hearing recently of a a movie that was filmed and released and none of the dialogue was scripted at all. Mm. And that kept coming back to mind as I was watching this one. So the dialogue in here felt very much to me like some of it was scripted, uh, that it was scripted in direction, but particularly the scenes between Zach and Shia uh, Shia LaBeouf, uh, LaBeouf, however you say his last name, (laughs) I felt like most of the scenes where it's just those two talking were completely ad lib. Uh, and that gave it that artsy feel to me. It was sort of the same way with Dakota Johnson, uh, the mm-hmm. scenes where she was working with Zach. And I felt like part of it may have been to accommodate uh, Zach's style because clearly he's Down syndrome. Uh, he has Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. But he's not uh, as high-functioning as... You know, many of the Down syndromes, kids or adults that are portrayed in the commercials, um, he's he's not low functioning either. He's right. What I would think is in the middle. I don't have a lot of experience with it. Um, but his line delivery is uh, very specific. And yeah. I felt that they wrote much of the movie to accommodate Zach and his performance. So it was sort of a way to sh- to show him off his his abilities off. Well, I think the whole movie was written for him. 
I, from what little research I can see, it, it appears that the writers and producers of the film actually created the movie for him to mm. act in. So I think your feeling on that is accurate that, you know, this movie was created to showcase Zach. You know, it was all the premise, everything was all created to showcase him as an actor. And I think they did a, a terrific job. What fascinates me about that is that when you read, you know, watch some of the interviews with him and, and uh, Shia LaBeouf and uh, Dakota Johnson, it's very interesting that the two actors seem to have developed real relationships with him. Yeah. And uh, in fact, in one of the interviews, which we'll put the link to it in the show notes, but there's this uh, very lengthy interview in which uh, Shia talks about the fact that it's intimidating to work with Zach because he's so honest. He's he's very truthful person. And that's the way all Downs people are. I have a cousin yeah. who's Downs and they don't lie. They don't, they, they, they simply have no dishonest bot bone in their body they are completely authentic people and because of that it forced both shia and dakota to be very authentic in the way that they portrayed the characters in fact i noticed at one point in the interview that uh zach actually refers to shia as tyler so i yeah, think in his I mind <laughs> i think in his mind shia is tyler because <laughs> I was I, I was actually curious about that because the, Tyler Neeson is the director, mm. so I tried to think back without rewinding YouTube. Was he talking yeah. about the director or was he talking about the character? Yeah, I don't know. I think he was talking about Shia, but I, I'm not yeah, positive. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, um, but it it makes sense because in order for him to to do his best performance, he would have to believe in the authenticness of the other two characters. And so Shia would have to present Tyler all the time when he's with Zach so that Zach can, I think Zach would be thrown off by having a different, you know, like Shia be a different person when the camera's yeah. not running. You really have you to know? be a method actor to, to make right. that work. You know, I could see why they were saying that it had such an impact on them because they had to not just act, they had to be those characters when they were yeah. around Zach in order to get the most authentic performance from Zach in all those interactions. Yeah. So I, I, I think that uh, you kind of see, I, I'm not as familiar with Shia LaBeouf. I know there's a lot of people who don't like him as a, as an actor and as a care, as a person. Yeah. He's got some history. He's got some history, but I think that this role may have been a redemption role for him. It'll be interesting to see where he goes after this movie. It's, you know, I'm I'm a little cynical when it comes to Shia LaBeouf and Dakota Johnson. They both have roles in the past that are uh, extremely risque. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I want to clarify by saying I don't know much about these two people at all. But I don't yeah. know that they would see it as even needing redemption. That this is just another art presentation of their art. And uh, it has a social justice cause on top of that, so it makes it even better. Mm -hmm. You're right. Um, but well, we'll again, just have I'm to probably wait and just see. being cynical. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, so another thing that I liked about it was uh, I, I live very close to the Outer Banks, and I've been down to that area. Uh, I've actually been camping very close to where they set off uh, at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I loved the – they really highlighted in the movie all the visuals that make that area so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it really felt real to me. I really enjoyed the whole slow burn feeling of mm -hmm. the presentation of, of the nature. It feels – it really slows down the pace of, of living because yeah. I think as – I would say a suburbanite. I'm not really an urbanite, but I live my world connected to everything. And then when you see just people floating on a raft in water and mm -hmm. and you have the part where Eleanor says, well, how long is it going to take us to get there? And, and how far uh, is it on the map? <laughs> yeah. How far is it on the map? And he just like uses his feet. And that's in the, the trailer. But it's yeah. absolutely hilarious because she's she's like been forced onto this journey with them. And she's like ready for them to be where they're going and like a, by the end of the day and he's like oh it could take us a couple days you know yeah. she's like 
days <laughs> like she wasn't prepared Panic for that mode. long of a trip yeah <laughs> uh two other things that i liked i really liked the I, I was thinking of it as a perpendicularity between the character developments of tyler and eleanor eleanor starts out as a, somebody who is overly parental overly protective she's nice to zach she clearly cares for him but she also doesn't see him as a, a man in his own right. He's At capable of point, making its own decisions. Yeah. yeah. At one point, she even says, and I think this is in the trailer too, uh, you have a young boy with Down syndrome. But it says later on that he's 22. Yeah. So, he's not a boy anymore. Yeah. Um, so Eleanor goes from this uh, overly paternal character to loosening up a little bit, which is is nice mm -hmm. tyler it goes the other way tyler has sort of a, re a redemptive arc although it's lacking the redemption <laughs> um see it tyler starts out as a bad man in the movie there yes. is no question he is a thief he is a vandal he starts a fire that could very well have killed people and he's very selfish yeah, it, it he gets more likable through the film through his interactions with Zach, but mm -hmm. at no point does he seem to. At no point does the movie take you back and show that he regrets his previous actions. Yeah, even he just wants to move on without the penance. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, for me, a redemptive arc means that they they have to the being redeemed part requires an understanding of the state that you were in beforehand, and yeah. that was sort of missing for Tyler. But he does go from very selfish, extremely selfish, to being much more paternal and friendly. Uh, at one point in the movie, he says, uh, "If I can leave you, I will." to zach and that you, and to, that was kind of that if if he slows him down he doesn't want zach to slow him down yeah, yeah. so it was really harsh i mean <laughs> we yeah sitting in the audience we're like oh is, zach is doing such a good job as a downs actor um and then the character tyler lets loose with this really harsh line and and you're like oh that hurt yeah but one thing is he never actually derides him, though, which right. is He's interesting. One of the, few. the last thing is uh, one of my – I wouldn't say he's one of my favorite actors, but I really liked Thomas Hayden Church. Mm -hmm. And he plays in this – the Saltwater Redneck uh, wrestler that, that Zach had come to idolize through watching hundreds of hours of video on VHS. The same video. The, the same, same video. The same video. Over and over and over again. <laughs> so, a minor spoiler here. When they finally get to uh, the red Saltwater Rednecks' home, where the school is supposed to be, the school had been closed for 10 years. And the way that Hayden Church plays the emotions on his face just really struck home to me. There's a scene where he's talking to Zach and he can see that Tyler and Eleanor understand what's actually going on, but he just has this pleading look in his eyes to not ruin it for Zach. You know, mm -hmm. I just liked how he does the emotion so well. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually, I think some really good performances in this movie, you know, despite the fact you said that it felt ad libbed in places. I, I really felt like, the performances were very genuine for most yeah. of the actors. I want to clarify there, though. It's just because they were ad-libbed, I don't think they were bad. Mm -hmm. It was different. And it takes a little while for me to get used to the difference of it. But I don't think it was bad in any real sense. And, and in particular, part of what I had difficulty with was Zach's delivery of the lines. Mm-hmm. But now that but I've after seen hearing him, him in the, in in the, the interviews, interviews, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. His delivery of the lines in the movie is, uh, you know, not even in the same ballpark as his in, his interview responses. So he clearly put a lot of work into this. Yeah. 
So it, I think that's just my bias, you know, and yeah. it's something I need to put behind me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's hard for people to express yourself, especially when you're uh, like, even when we're recording here, we, we tend to do stuttering and that kind of thing just because we're thinking while we're talking yeah and it happens to the best of us and when you add a a mental uh, disability on top of that it's really hard to pull the words out so I really can empathize with Zach when he's you know doing free interviews where it's not scripted and people are asking him questions and then he has to think of an answer and then say the answer and you know, it takes a little longer for those thoughts to get organized mm-hmm. and out out of his mouth. And I, I completely empathize with that. And, you know, they're, they're probably not doing anywhere near as many interviews as like the Endgame actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably did interview after interview after interview for three or four weeks straight, seven interviews a day. And uh, Zach, Shia and Dakota maybe have done a dozen interviews over a month. So they haven't really developed their pat answers as well as Chris Evans or uh, Hemsworth. I appreciate the patience of the interviewers and Shia and Dakota too, because it's really easy when you're sitting next to somebody who's struggling to put something into words to, to say it for them instead of letting them go ahead and get the words out. You know, they all sat patiently and let him struggle to say what he needed to say instead of, you know, cutting him off and mm. putting words in his mouth. And I appreciate the patience of everybody involved because that's a tendency I have when somebody's struggling to say something, <laughs> even with you sometimes I'll help go ahead and help them along. You know, this is what you're trying to say, you know. So, yeah, it's and especially when you're dealing with somebody with a um, a mental need like that, you you want to let them have their voice. You don't want to speak for them. So I really appreciate their patience on that. Yeah, I agree. So shall we jump into the themes? Oh, sure. Um, I think because we've already been discussing it, I think we should talk about, you know, the the limitations first, because that's, uh, I think the, probably the whole reason why they made the movie to begin with was, you you know, this whole concept of dealing with a person with Down syndrome and, how you treat them and what you expect of them, what you expect them to be able to do and how much you allow them to make those decisions for themselves. And the story of Zach in the movie is very sad because it sounds like his family just abandoned him in a nursing home because they Mm -hmm. couldn't take care of him. And he's, he's this young man among all these old people who are, you know, at their end of life and he hasn't even started his life and he has dreams and, and ideas of what he wants to do. But, but he's been confined to, you know, a nursing home. I do like how the residents are in cahoots with him the entire time. Though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like the residents clearly here. know that he needs to get out there and live. Right. But the man is holding him down. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting situation. It's a sad situation because I can't imagine how many uh, people of special needs, you know, deal with that. I, I've had a couple in my own family. I have a cousin who is fairly high functioning Down syndrome, and she just graduated from high school, I think like two years ago and or a year ago. Time flies for me, so it's hard for me to <laughs> I don't interact with, with her that there. much, but yeah. But she has very sensitive parents who have raised her to be as independent as she's capable of being. And I think that that is what it takes is very special people to raise uh, people with those kind of limitations to do what, you know, to be capable of doing what they can do and not be held back by, you know, a lack of expectations. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. and and there's that scene in the movie where uh, Eleanor joins Tyler and Zach on the raft and Eleanor starts trying to baby Zach to a certain, you know, like, have you taken, you haven't taken your meds? Have you eaten something, your blood sugar, blah, blah, blah. And Shia has this very quick discussion with her about treating him like a quote unquote retard. And she's like, well, I've never called him that word. And he says, you may not have ever used the word, but you treat him like you think that. And I think that that is a situation that we all have to deal with is that you may not use the word, but sometimes the way you treat people communicates that word, even if you never say it. 
Yeah, it was uh, – I kept thinking of her as being overly paternal, and I still do. But it, mm-hmm. she was treating him like a child, and she was treating him like a child because of his Down syndrome. So, yeah, I can definitely see where that was coming from. And I get what he was saying because earlier on in the movie, Zach had, had told Tyler, I'm a person with Down syndrome. And paraphrasing Tyler's reply, he didn't care. He's like, I don't care. Yeah. And it is a situation where he's like, I'm going to deal with you one-on-one as a person and you're going to pull your weight and, you know, <laughs> you're going to keep up and you're not going to slow me down. And I couldn't care less that you have Down What's syndrome. What's rule number one? Don't slow me down. No, party. Uh, party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was the difference in the two relationships there was that she yeah. was she had a fixed idea of what Zach was capable of doing. Yeah. And she was holding him back to that expectation while Tyler was the exact opposite. Tyler had, you know, this these are a high level of expectation. He's going to keep up with me. He's not going to slow me down. He's going to pull his own weight. We're going to train him to be the wrestler that he claims he wants to be. We're we're going to do all of this stuff and we're going to have fun doing it. And he's just not going to let any expectations that Zach has limitations to slow them down. Yeah. And And he was a person, he was a a person first to Tyler. Right. Right. And to Eleanor, at least in the beginning, he was a case first. Right. And I just wanted to deal with this topic just quickly because, you know, Down syndrome is pretty prevalent. I mean, there's a lot of people who have had to let go of their children because they can't handle it. And then there's a lot of really great parents out there who are raising children with special needs. And my hat's off to them because I don't know if I could do it. Yeah, uh, I have a cousin, like I said, who is raising a daughter with Down syndrome. I have a one of my friends and uh, ex-roommate uh, is uh, raising a, a son with Williams syndrome, which is something similar. And all of these people are special in the eyes of God. They are all just like us knit in, in their mother's wombs with God fully in control. God is sovereign still over their lives. Still in God's lives. image, every single still one. Still in God's image. Yeah. And, and that refers us back to Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. They are all unique individual creations of God, and they all deserve our respect for that. And then in um, one of my favorite books of the Bible is Psalm 139. And I'm just going to read 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So this is, this is what we all are. Even those with special needs, we all have something about us that is broken and sinful and wrong. Some people that expresses itself in physical ways. Some people expresses itself in spiritual ways, but we are all made in the image of God and we are all important because of that. So we are all image bearers and we shouldn't, treat anybody as less than human or degrade them or count what they can do as not useful. Right. Yeah. In media, Down syndrome is linked to the abortion debate now because yes. tests are getting so much better and the ability to uh, predetermine if a, a, a child is going to be born with Down syndrome gives people the option to abort the child before they're born Mm -hmm. and i know you and i stand the same place in abortion i suspect most of our listeners do so we really shouldn't spend that much time on it but when you and i were born uh you know back 20 years ago (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) thank you for saying 20 years (laughs) Whether or not your child was born with Down syndrome or or a similar condition was a complete surprise. Mm-hmm. It's I want to say when I was born, they could barely detect cystic fibrosis in the womb. Mm-hmm. You know, God God puts these challenges in our paths 
for a purpose and we should not do our best to get around them. And you know what? It, I understand that there are going to be families out there who are just not going to be up to the task. And this task is the task of raising a special needs child is significant. Mm-hmm. But it takes a lot of time, a lot of patience, a lot of money in some instances, because some of the special needs come with a lot of uh, physical ailments and that cost a lot of money to take care of medically. So it's not cheap either. God's will is that these children, regardless of how they are afflicted by the fallen state of man, should still be born and walk the earth, even if they can't live with their families God is going mm-hmm. to take care of them in ways that only he can know. Right. And they can be a, a massive blessing to the people who raise them and care oh, for them. Huge. Uh, yeah. I mean, as we were talking about, you know, Down syndrome, people are very honest and they're just very sweet and kind. They have wonderful dispositions. You know, just it's a blessing to be around them because normal people and I say normal in quotes because we're all, <laughs> like I said, where there's always something wrong with us. It, it may not express itself in, in ways like Down syndrome does, but there's we all have some aspects of the curse that expresses itself yeah. in ours. But we are deceptive and manipulative and all of these things that you would never accuse a Down syndrome person of being because they just are beautifully honest and to know one and to interact with one is a life-changing experience because they really are sweet people. And that goes, it's not just for Downs, that goes for any any child born. I mean, we have some people in my church whose daughter has San Filippo and it's a, a genetic ailment. It's passed on. It's a recessive. So if you're the mother and the father both have it as a recessive, then yeah. they have a 50-50 chance of their children having it. And it's a um, horrible, horrible disease in which they are born and they mature normally until they reach about four. And then when they reach about the age of four, they start going downhill very quickly. And basically, it's uh, their body is unable to get rid of the um, chemicals that, that build up in the brain uh, that cause the normal functioning of the brain is that these chemicals are shunted out of the body regularly, like whenever you sleep or whatever. And in these children with San Filippo, that chemical never gets shunted away. It just builds up in the brain and Mm. eventually causes um, severe, uh, like the brain almost just like quits functioning. And it's a very slow, gradual uh, thing that eventually results in their death, but they go go backwards. It's like they get to a normal development till about age four, and then they start going backwards in mental development until they mm. turn into vegetables and they pass away. And it's extremely hard to watch. We have this girl in my church, and um, she's now, I believe, eight, seven or eight. And they usually don't live past 12. So, oh. and there's no, there's no cure. There's no treatment. They're currently working on, on a, one. a weight. It is a difficult thing to watch children suffer through that, but we do know that God is in control and that he ordained that child and all these children that have San Filippo to be born and to be blessings in the lives of their families for however short a time that is. And while it's difficult to watch, it is also a reminder of why we have suffering in this world, which is sin. Yeah. This is the sin curse on on everything. Yeah, that that that's such a common argument from atheists and agnostics. Why does God allow Down syndrome? Why does God allow San Filippo? As if their suffering doesn't serve a purpose, that their suffering is not. I I don't know how to say it. Like, I feel like it when when people ask that question, I feel like they're just not giving it enough thought. Yeah. It's funny because I was listening to Matt Walsh and he was trying to answer a light-end question about why is there suffering? And his answer was really, really bad. And I'm like, (laughs) quit asking these political commentators to give theological answers to questions because their theology is not great. Their political commentary is interesting, but their (laughs) theology is terrible. But, you know, the, the answer to why is there, why do kids suffer 
it's entirely because of sin in the world. That is that is the answer. And when people struggle, you know, they're innocent. It's like, no, actually, they're not innocent. We're all born sinners. That's mm. we all live with the consequences of sin, no matter how innocent we are as babies, we are we still have a sin nature. And we still live in a sin cursed world. And so that is the answer. It's like, yeah. I know it's a tough answer, but that is the answer to why children they suffer don't want through to these. accept it. Yeah. Oh. Well, we beat that horse to death. Yeah. So. Yep. <laughs> there are a lot of religious references in this movie. I, I was actually surprised at how many there were. And the, of course, the biggest one was uh, Blind Jasper John. Tyler and Zach meet him because they try to steal a boat from his junkyard. <laughs> And he shoots at them and he's blind, which is kind of interesting. He just kind of like randomly starts shooting his gun. But thankfully, he doesn't hit anything or anyone. But he is portrayed as this, I guess, kind of like a backwoods Bible thumper. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like an itinerant preacher. Pre yeah. And his answer to every problem is baptism. So yep. he drags Tyler and Zach into the river and baptizes them. We're not talking Presbyterian baptisms here. We're talking full-on Yeah, Baptist. Yeah, Baptist baptisms. And he says, this is a paraphrase because I wasn't able to get everything down when I was writing down my yeah. notes. Is something in the order of bathe in the waters of forgiveness. Nothing can touch you now in the grace of God. Let all the wolves of your past be laid to rest. And I find it interesting that in the context of the movie, you know, this whole baptism thing is presented as being you know, this redemptive thing, you know, because you were talking about like that you never saw yeah. Tyler yeah. be redeemed. And it's like, that's not exactly what baptism is in real life. I mean, in, in the Christian, at least in the Protestant version of baptism, for the most mm -hmm. part, I know there are some, you know, infant baptisms in, in some of the denominations, but for the most part, baptism in most of the Protestant Christian uh, walks circle whatever you want to say, it represents an outward demonstration of an inward change. And I do it's not feel like it's a commitment. Yeah. It's yeah. like a public, public testimony, basically. Yeah. This is, this is me showing that I have been uh, changed in, into a new creature by the grace of God, you know, through the blood of Jesus, you know, I have repented of my sins and I am becoming a new creature. And and all of that stuff is completely left out of this baptism. He just <laughs> dunks him in the river and it's like, now you can go, you're, you know. And one of the things I find ironic about that is, is that Tyler's being chased by the consequences of his past. Recent past. <laughs> Recent past. He's done some very bad things and the consequences are chasing him quite literally. So when Jasper John tells him to let the wolves of your past be laid to rest, they aren't because this wolf of his past is literally chasing him down. And it's one of those situations where I think we forget that even when we find cleansing from our sins, through Christ uh, before God, a lot of times that doesn't necessarily take away the consequences of our sin. And I know we have dealt oh, yeah. with this in previous discussions. And like you said, I don't even really feel like Tyler had a real repentance there. I don't think he felt sorry for what he'd done or repented in any way. He was just going through the motions to make Jasper happy, but it wasn't yeah. um, a, a real redemption on his part. But even if there had been real redemption there, he was still being chased by the wolves of his past because he still had restitution to make. Yeah. Yeah. You still have to suffer the consequences of your sin. And, you know, it, Tyler is rightly blaming himself for his brother's Killing death. His brother. he, mm -hmm. Yeah. He fell asleep at the wheel when they were driving home from a bar. So it, I, I feel like that's the, the core thing that's driving him. And when, Jasper goes to uh, baptize him. He says, I'm I'm more of a baptism by fire type of guy. Yeah. And it, it really spoke to me about Tyler's character at that time. He goes out of his way to find trouble because he thinks he deserves it. Yeah. And yeah, that, he's punishing himself. Yeah. It, and that's never resolved through the entire movie. That's the redemption that that character really needs. Right. He needs to forgive himself. Exactly. And it never happens. And I I wish they had done that. I understand, you know, there's only so much you can fit 
in a movie. <laughs> right. Uh, but this movie did have a lot of empty space in it. Yeah. As far as dialogue and everything. I felt like that he was getting there because he was rebuilding that the relationship he'd had with his brother. That brotherhood was expressing itself through his relationship with Zach. And yeah, yeah, they were building that bond and he was recouping that loss through Zach. And there's even the scene where Zach becomes like the older brother, you know, where Zach is giving him comfort. And yeah, he I says, really I'll give you all my birthday wishes. Yeah. And I really feel like that that's what they were trying to do in the movie was show that he was that that was Tyler's redemption was that he was building this new brotherhood relationship with Zach. But the movie ending is so abrupt that I really feel like they could have finished that out more. Yeah. And I, I agree with you that we don't feel like that character's arc was finished because the, of the abrupt ending. And I think that it could have gotten there. Maybe we were supposed to, because so, there's so little dialogue, maybe we were just supposed to assume that it happened. <laughs> I don't well, know. Well, you know, uh, eventually the sequel to Peanut Butter Falcon will be released. It's going to be called The Jelly Swan. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's where his arc will be completed. <laughs> well, Jasper is another one of our, God, another God-fearing scene. Uh, he asks when Eleanor is still tracking down uh, Zach, he, she comes to Jasper's house and knocks on the door. And Jasper asks Eleanor if she's God-fearing, and she says sometimes. And so he invites <laughs> her in. Uh, I think that that is probably a good answer for probably the vast majority of us, that we are sometimes <laughs> God-fearing. Not often enough. Right. Uh, Tyler is told by his, I don't know whether it was employer, partner, uh, somebody he was working for on a iffy basis, maybe, friend, um, tells him that his brother, Mark, who is played, interestingly enough, by John Bernthal, uh, is looking down at him from above. And so there is this idea of, you know, the, the saints above are looking down at you and your loved ones when they die or somewhere on the fluffy clouds watching mm, you from above. Yeah. I think that that is a very inaccurate way. I won't say bad way, but it I don't know that that's necessarily a good way to portray our yeah, dead relatives. It, it's not but... a theologically sound way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't say that it doesn't happen because, you know, we don't we don't have much by way of understanding of, of what life is like in heaven. Right. But we do know that heaven is all about praising God. And it seems to me that spending time on a cloud strumming the harp, polishing the halo, and looking <laughs> down on your descendants is not really the best way to be doing that. Yeah. I have a theory, and I can't prove it scripturally, but my theory is that, and I have pulled this theory together from reading scripture, but it would be difficult to prove it scripturally because it has to deal with something that we have not seen the side of heaven. But my theory is that and as Christians, when we die, we fall. It's like falling asleep because they say that the, those who have fallen asleep they actually refer to it that way in scripture, that we wake up in the judgment, that it's that that the period of time from now until when all of us are joined together in heaven is is a blink of an eye. Yeah. Actually, when we die, we reach eternity instantly. So time then has no so there's no of this looking down on heaven at time as it's going right. on it's like when we die we are instantly in eternity and we're outside of time so therefore there is this that that's my theory i don't yeah, know that i think that is as reasonable an assessment as anything yeah we'll figure it out when we get there <laughs> uh, so I, I wanted to comment real quick on on jasper his character is such that he's he really is just flavor, and I feel like mm -hmm. he's written as somebody from the outside looking in, writes the backwater religious Bible thumper. Right. Yeah, he's he's kind of supposed to be the stand-in for a lot of different characters. He's Yeah. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. He's like a stereotype. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he starts off by asking, are you a God-fearing person? And I was thinking about that, and that was something that always – that took me forever to understand, the idea of, of fearing God. You know, when I think of fearing God, I think of fearing a spanking. Yeah, being uh, afraid. As a child. Actual, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's not what fear of the Lord is. And, and mm -hmm. I wanted to, to bring up 
Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Fear of God is hating what he hates. Mm-hmm. And, and being I would an say extension it's also, of him. Yeah, respect of, of his authority, his ultimate authority. Yeah. So when he asks, are you a God-fearing person? And Eleanor said, sometimes... The answer really is not often enough. Uh, that's what right. it should be, because yeah. we all forget to fear God, <laughs> but we shouldn't. We really shouldn't. It should be a core element of our faith. Yeah. There's probably some other subtle stuff in the movie about religion, but that was the big stuff. And yeah. I was really surprised that as much as, as that got in the movie, but it is, like we said, it's a portrait of a particular and unique culture in the United States. And I think that religion, especially, you know, Christian faith is a very foundational concept to that Mm -hmm. culture. And so they had to portray it or they wouldn't be authentic to the people who live in that area. I I think it would have left a tangible hole in the story if they had not at least made a reference to a church or a religion, because those little one room churches are all over uh, the Outer Banks area. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's. um pretty strong part of that culture now the next topic we want to talk about is human heroes because one of the themes that's running through this whole thing is zach's hero the saltwater redneck and which who we've referred to earlier zach has developed a bit of hero worship for this person that he's only seen and really basically an ad for a, a wrestling school that's and it's an ad that he's watched over and over again and he's built saltwater redneck up into this almost like messianic hero status in his mind. He was like, yeah. I'm going to get down there and he's in going to change. Way. Yeah. In a very childlike way, he's going to change my life and I'm going to become this great wrestler. And in fact, there's the scene in the later on after uh, they have met Clint, who is uh, saltwater redneck where Tyler is having this conversation with Zach. Well, you know, saltwater doesn't exist. And he's like, yes, he does. I've seen him in a video. And it was almost like somebody discussing God with an atheist. You know, like, <laughs> I know he exists. I've seen evidence of him in my life. No, I've he doesn't exist. I've seen the films. <laughs> yeah. But that is, you know, where he's built this, you know, this almost mythical uh, idea of what who saltwater redneck is. And eventually, you know, of course, Clint comes in and plays the role and he helps create that persona for Zach so that Zach can have that wish fulfillment there. Mm -hmm. But in the end, one of the things that made me, you know, that I thought about is, is we all as children have worshiped somebody. And sometimes as adults, we worship people, you know, we, we build public people, you know, celebrities or whatever up to a level of expectation that they're real people with real problems and they can fail you just as easily as people that are in your life intimately can fail you. And so we have to be very careful with building, having that childlike faith in the wrong thing, because we're supposed to approach Christ as little children. Christ makes it clear in his teaching that we are to come to the kingdom of heaven like children. Uh, he mm-hmm. says uh, in Matthew nineteen thirteen and 14, it, it tells the story of the children. Then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder, for, hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them and went away. Yeah. One of those interesting, you know, things that we come to Christ with that childlike faith. And, but as adults, uh, you know, mature Christians, we have to be careful about sinking that kind of devotion, that kind of honor into fallible people instead of God. I'm not necessarily saying that we can't respect people and and hold them in high regard, especially like uh, pastors or, you know, theologians and, you know, people that have studied and, and have experience that is valuable, especially to our Christian walk. But we have to remember that even the greatest theologian has feet of clay. They are human. They make mistakes. Yeah. 
I mean, it's like recently in the news, there's this um, this guy that had started like the purity movement in the, what was the 80s and 90s? Who's oh, yeah. Com- completely walked away from the church and, and his faith. And uh, it's shattering a lot of people because they put their faith in him instead of in, in the right things. And so you have to be careful that when you're following some, you know, preacher's teaching or some leading Christian figure's ministry, you have to be yeah. careful that in the end, your eyes are on God and not on the people because the people will make mistakes and they will fail you. Mm-hmm. And so we have to have a, a real understanding of how far we can idolize people. You know, what really drove that uh, that entire point home to me recently was I learned about uh, Martin Luther in his later years. Uh, you know, Martin Luther is held up as a, a pillar of Protestantism and he nailed the 95 Theses to... Mm-hmm the church doors and and identified much of the reformed theology but in his later life he was miserable he suffered from terrible gout incredible digestive issues mm-hmm. he did a 180 on his position on jews uh now keep in mind this is the 1500s yeah so, <laughs> It's not the same thing as it as it is today, but he did a 180 on the place of the Jewish people in uh, both Christian theology and in uh, society in general. So even somebody as great and as held in such high regard as Martin Luther, he still suffers from the sinful nature that a fallen man. And when we hold somebody up on a on a pedestal like that we really need to focus on the examples of good and use those examples to serve god and not trust that the idol isn't going to fall mhm i was watching a, a 1991 episode of uh, johnny carson this morning and he made two jokes about uh, one about oral roberts and one about jimmy swaggart and i was reminded of uh how common it was back then for these uh, pillars of the Christian, the televangelist community to to fall down. Yeah. And we just need to remember that that's, that's going to happen because we are all constantly making mistakes and uh, trying to learn from them. Yeah. We were talking earlier about, you know, the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Yeah. And if you look at every single, almost every single person mentioned in that Hall (laughs) of Faith stumbled in some way in their actual, you know, walk with the Lord, they're held up as men of faith or people of faith, but yet they all struggled with faith in their real lives. And so it just goes to show that we're all human and we shouldn't put that much faith in people. We should always put the faith in God. And um, it's just a good reminder. Yeah. We want to want to gloss over and move along so we don't uh, get bogged down in that because I do want to deal with the next topic. The word retard and put that in quotes again is used multiple yeah. times in, in the movie. And it is. I, in fact, I saw one of the reviews I was reading about it said that it was painful to watch. Yeah. It used to be a, the term for people with special uh, mental special needs, you know, to right. call them retarded. And it it was a medical thing even. Yeah. And, and it's become a derogatory way of referring to people. And it is painful. And uh, it would be like using the N word for a black person. It's just yeah. it, it's like rubbing salt the wound. Entomologically, if that's the right word, I mean, to retard something means to slow down. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is retarded, they are slower. So it, you know, it made sense, but society evolved in such a way that it became an insult. And this movie takes that insult and it drives it as a dagger into the viewer's heart every time they use it because it's being used in many cases by people who should definitely know better. Yeah. Even, you know, the the first time I think you hear it in the movie is when, you know, the orderly at the yeah. nursing home comes in and, and tells Zach it's time for bed and he just, time for bed, you know, retard. And it was difficult when you realize that Zach is in a position where he has no control over his own life and, and people are der- deriding him. And he has no pow- no control, no power over that. And it's just super mm-hmm. sad. 
You know, uh, my son and I have recently started a small group study called Words and Deeds, Becoming a Man of Courageous Integrity by Charles Causey. Mm -hmm. It's specifically aimed at uh, military men. And uh, I've mentioned before that my son is uh, active duty in the army over in Germany, and we're doing this remotely. But it makes Mm -hmm. a point that the rhyme that we learned as kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is completely wrong. Words carry power and force. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the Bible. On the road to Emmaus, where the two disciples are walking, and uh, Christ appears among them with his identity obscured. And the the two disciples say, haven't you heard anything about what's happened in Jerusalem these last days? And the disguised Christ says, what things, he asks them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all people. So the deeds and words were highlighted in this verse, and I think that's important because the words are your outward representation of what's in your heart. If your heart is corrupt, your words will be corrupt too. And it's one of the reasons that as Christians, we should do our best, though many of us fail far too often, (laughs) to avoid cussing. Because when we open our mouths and talk, it should always be to reflect what's in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And uh, even David prays that way in Psalm 1914. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Yeah, we should remember that it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. If you remember, uh, Elisha was mocked by young boys and you know, a bear came out and slaughtered them for it. And <laughs> harsh. Harsh, yes. And and you have the that whole concept of honoring your father and, and mother and the that whole concept in the Ten Commandments in the actual expanded law, if you spoke ill, you know, with lack of respect, they could stone you. So yeah. This is kind of inbred in the whole biblical underpinnings. You know, a lot of people say we don't live under the Old Testament. We live under the New Testament. We live under grace. But that doesn't mean that we can be sinful with our words. In fact, one of my my favorite books of the Bible is James. And there's a whole segment in James that's talking about, you know, that you can't have um, bitter water and and sweet water coming Mm from from the same place. I mean, that this is, uh, it's in the Sermon on the Mount as well. So you have all of these places in scripture where it's warning you, you know, to be fruitful in in what you say. And so it is definitely a, a scriptural position that we can take that we should be guarding our tongue and be careful how we refer to people and speak with respect to all men because, well, it goes, always goes back to the golden rule. You know, you speak mm. of others the way you would want them to speak of you. So yeah. You should always be careful in in your words. And I think that's very important. And I'm thankful that this movie gives us the opportunity to talk about some of these, even if just briefly, some of these things that are uh, important in our culture today. Yeah, you know, if you're watching this movie and the use of the word retard when referring to Zach does not hurt a little bit, I think that's cause to be concerned. Yeah. Now, the the last thing that I do want to talk about briefly before we close up this podcast is, you know, the whole concept of friends being the yep. family that you choose. Zach is familyless and his family abandoned him. He doesn't have anybody and he's got friends because, you know, obviously the, the older people in the nursing home help him as much as they can. Um, his roommate actually helps him break out <laughs> with a little application of an engineering concept. So we have this idea. In fact, I think it's his roommate, Carl, who says, you know, friends are the family that you choose. Yeah. And then he, when when Zach runs away, he meets Tyler and they build this friendship that is as close as you can get. It's like brotherhood. They are yeah. literally becoming brothers on the road together. And it changes Tyler. You see his character change. It changes Zach because he has somebody he can depend on, somebody he can trust. And... Tyler proves himself to be trustworthy because he keeps his promises, even though he has to work awful hard to do it in a couple of places. <laughs> it's one of those situations that I think we should remember as 
Christians because, you know, Jesus told us that those who, that there would be people who have to leave, you know, brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers for the sake of the gospel. And we gain a much bigger family by doing that because the relationship that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ is so much stronger than any blood relationship because we are literally all bathed in the blood of Christ. And so it is a churches are families. And I think a lot of times we forget that, that when we are fellowshipping with other believers, we are building families. That's what we are doing. And when we're talking in church and, you know, uh, the pastor says, hey, brother, how are you doing? Uh, we, we really need to remember that when we use the term brother or sister, we are really talking family. <laughs> we're not just yeah. using a way to reference to somebody. Right. I thought it was interesting. I posted this on my uh, Facebook page. I had seen someone else post it. I thought it was very applicable. Reasons I never go to church, and then they have drawn the line through that, go to church and replaced it with shower. Reasons I never shower. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Because this is one of those situations where church is our place of fellowship. It's where we join with our family in Christ. And people give the weirdest excuses for not going to church, right? Yeah, oh, yeah on a regular basis. Um, These are some of, this is, remember, this is, they've replaced go to church with shower. I was forced to shower as a child. People who shower are hypocrites. They think they are cleaner than everyone else. There are so many different kinds of soap. I could never decide which one was right. I used to shower, but it got boring. So I stopped. I shower only on special occasions like Easter and Christmas. None of my friends shower. I'm still young. When I'm older and have gotten a bit dirtier, I might start showering. (laughs) I really don't have time to shower. The bathroom is never warm enough in the winter or cool enough in the summer. People who make soap are only after your money. But these are the kind of excuses that we see a lot of people not wanting to fellowship with other believers. And this is considerate this way. They are your family. And if you don't spend time with them, then you're not going to be a member of the family. That's just the way it is. The excuses don't hold out. Family is never going to be perfect on this world. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know what? There are brothers at, brothers and sisters at church who have personalities that get under my skin. But you know what? My biological <laughs> brothers and sisters have personalities <laughs> that get under my skin, just as I'm sure I do theirs. Yes. So yes. it's all about love. <laughs> Yeah, goes back to love and not idolizing people beyond what they are yeah. capable of performing in, in their human frailty. I would encourage, uh, this is sort of a weird episode for us because I think most people will be listening to it before they see the movie. Yeah. So I would encourage you to see the movie because it really is. And we haven't really given is. away the climax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It really, it's it's a great, it it's a movie that makes you really think about your preconceived notion, notions and your prejudices. I mean, I I know that I see Down syndrome in a very limited way based on my experience. This movie challenges that, and, and I think it challenges it in a good way. Yeah. I think everybody should grasp onto the opportunity to see this. Yeah, it's a great movie. I didn't know what I was going to see when I went in. You know, we chose this movie somewhat randomly because we wanted to do uh, in the theater movie and there really wasn't a lot to choose from. Yeah. Uh, that was currently playing that we could go see right away. Overcomer was one we discussed, but it's a Christian movie and we kind of wanted to deal with something that was not at its roots Christian. So I, I'm really quite uh, pleased with how this came out because I wasn't sure what this movie was going to be like. And I'm I'm thankful that they made the movie and that it's out there and that people can see it because I, I do believe it's a topic that could use the exposure. Yeah, agreed. Well, if you enjoyed listening to this episode and would like to give us uh, any kind of feedback, you can do so on our show notes, which are at areyoujustwatching.com slash 96. You can call us at 513-818-2959 and leave a voicemail, or you can send us email at feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. Uh, we do encourage you to join our Facebook uh, discussion group, uh, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community. Uh, it'll take you right there and you can ask to join. We would encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get or listen to your podcasts, since there are multiple ways to do that now. <laughs> so many. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Eve Franklin. And I'm on Twitter at Rencheple, R-E-N-C-H-E-P-L-E. Uh, I don't, I don't actually tweet much. <laughs> More of a uh, vulture Follower. circling above and, <laughs> and looking yeah, down I... on the masses waiting for somebody to make a fatal mistake. Yeah. Well, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, I almost always uh, post a link on Twitter. So if that's one way that you can get regular notifications when we have an episode come out is if you're following me. That's about all I post in Twitter. So I think that closes it up. Just a reminder that if you are, can consider supporting us, you can go to patreon.com slash are you just watching and uh, pledge a monthly gift to us. And we really would appreciate that. And uh, do check out our Christian podcast community. Uh, you, it is a, a new community that we joined back in, I guess it was April that we joined them. And yeah. they have a lot of really, they're adding Christian podcasts almost on a monthly basis there. And it, <laughs> they are. It, it's a growing podcast community. So they're actually, they have a feed that you can just subscribe to the community and every podcast that gets posted uh, goes into the feed and then you just get them all. And that's a, a good way if you're just looking for some good Christian. A lot of it, a lot of it is in-depth theology kind of stuff. So if you'd like to listen to that kind of stuff, uh, do check them out. And I believe that's it. We thank you so much for listening. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The good news is Striving for Eternity would love to come to your church to spend two days with your folks teaching them biblical hermeneutics. That's right, the art and science of interpreting scripture. The bad news is somebody attending might be really upset to discover Jeremiah 2911 should not be their life verse. To learn more, go to strivingforeternity.org to host a Bible interpretation made easy seminar in your area.